Principal Matters Podcast, episode 155. Hi, Principal Matters listeners. This is Will Parker, host of Principal Matters, the School Leaders Podcast, which we bring you inspiring, innovative, and imaginative ideas for your own school leadership. You can check out all our resources for school leaders at my website at williamdparker.com. This week, we're discussing Principles in Parenting, Part 2, with my guest and co-host, Jen Schwanke, who's also the author of You're the Principal, Now What? Strategies and Solutions for New School Leaders, and she's the principal of Indian Run Elementary School in Dublin, Ohio. Welcome back, Jen, to Principal Matters. Thanks so much for joining us for this series that we're hosting together. And how are things going in Dublin? They are going great. We have moved into summertime, so the pace is a lot slower, and there's a lot of good time to reflect on the job of being a principal. So that's why I'm glad we're here to bring up this topic again. Me too. You know, last week we touched on what is it like also wearing the hat of the parent of a child in your building, and then what must it be like for our children whose parents are principals? Because this is the topic that I often find myself talking to principals about in private, but I haven't heard talked about much in public. And so thank you so much, Jen, for you're the one that suggested that we dive into this topic. And I'm really enjoying the conversation. And I want to jump this week into this conversation first with a story. And then I want to look at some of the perspectives that teachers have when managing and teaching principals, kids, some things that we can avoid and some goals that we can help set uh, if we are the principal parents of the children in, in our buildings too. But several years ago, Jen, I was leading a school with both of my oldest daughters in my building, and we had a situation where the police contacted our school and said that there was a a threat to our school that they were aware of that had come through social media, and they were investigating it and needed us to lock down our building and not have anyone move until they assured that, that our situation was safe. So I'm the principal. I get on and I make an announcement. We are going into our lockdown procedures at this point. Teachers, please follow that procedure. And our teachers immediately went into gear. I stepped out to watch them locking doors and making sure kids weren't moving around the building, et cetera. A few minutes later, my phone rings and it's my daughter. And I immediately get upset because I'm like, why is she calling me in the middle of a situation like this? So I answer it to basically tell her, don't do this. And I pick it up and she's like, dad, I'm sitting in class. What's going on? I'm scared. And I said, honey, you are a student in the school like everyone else. Just listen for announcements and let me do my job. And I hang up. And then I immediately felt guilty because I realized at that moment, not feeling so much guilty that my daughter was scared, which I did feel guilty, but I realized how poorly I had communicated to the entire school what was actually happening. And so I stepped back into my office and I got on the phone and I said, teachers and students, let me just give you some context for what's happening. We have a situation that's been alerted by the police that's outside of our school. They've asked us to lock down as they're investigating it. You are safe. I want to make sure that you know that. And as soon as we've got all clear from them that they've managed the situation happening outside of our school, we will release us from this procedure and we'll go back to our normal schedule. And we waited and we monitored and we communicated with police and we made sure those things were happening. And I shot out a message to our parents on our email blast so that they would be aware of what was happening. And Jen, I can't tell you how many parents I had the next day reach out to me telling me, thank you so much for how you managed the situation. My child told me how safe she felt or he felt by the way you communicated to them. But they had no idea how 
badly I had managed that situation <laughs> until my daughter had reflected back to me that dad, we know nothing and I'm scared. And so, you know, it's one of those situations where I walked out the next day with a lot of praise. But what I wanted to say to all those parents was, you guys have no idea what a bad principal I was being in that moment until my daughter reflected for me right. what your kids were really wanting to know in that moment. Right, right. Well, good for your daughter. She didn't know it, but she she made you a better principal that day. She did. And so as we're jumping into today's conversation, I think it's important for us to remember our kids have perspective on our school that we don't. And it's important for us to try to remember that, that we aren't, we don't know it all. Even though we may be managing the building, we may be the ones that are on the front line, we may know every teacher we've hired, and we may understand the master schedules, doesn't mean we really understand what's happening in our schools. And so it's so important for us to put ourselves in the minds of our kids, not so that we micromanage what's happening from their perspectives, but so that we can respond to that and hopefully be better principals because of it. No, I think it's, it is a constant reflection and constantly thinking of all the different perspectives connected to being a student or a parent teacher, you know, in the building. I think what we, you and I have touched on multiple times is the teacher's perspective and what it must be like to have Mm -hmm. the principal's kid in your class. And I'm sure every principal who's listening might have a different perspective on how a child gets placed, whether it's on a team or whether it's with particular teachers in different subject levels or what teacher is assigned at the elementary level. But I think most teachers probably get their rosters and and scan down and they see the principal's kid's name on there. And it, it is, it must be a little bit of a shift in thinking and cause a level of anxiety just because it's, you know, they will now, they now know that the principal will have a bird's eye view and what the classroom's really like. And you and mm-hmm. I touched on earlier, some, that every child is different. Some kids might come home and tell mom and dad every single detail about the day. And that's alarming because to teach a class of students is a very intimate experience. And there are times that we do it alone. And it's almost like a code, I think, with classes and their teachers. And to lose that is, I think it just must be very awkward and, and cause some anxiety. To the, you know, just a quick story about that. I have a, a child who is a, a talker and I have a child who never says a word. And the teacher, a teacher who had both of them once said to me, I knew that your daughter would go home and tell, tell you, even when we ran out of Kleenex, you would know everything. And I knew that your son was never going to say a word. And she said, so I, I spent a lot of time thinking about being basically evaluated all the time. And, and from the teacher's perspective, that can't be easy. No. So let's, let's dive into that. We've talked a lot in the last episode about the parent's perspective, the student's perspective, the child's perspective. But I remember I had several, because I taught for 11 years before I was in school administration, and I had several students over the years who were my principal's kids or were or their parents were principals somewhere within the district. And so it is a different sense that you have when you're sitting in a classroom and you see that child in front of you who represents your boss or who represents a leader within your school community or who represents a peer because they're going to be somebody that that may reflect back. And so I think it's important for us to remember that too, that we have to, as we are placing our kids into the teacher's classrooms, that we realize we're putting them in an uncomfortable position too, not exactly. just the kids, but we're putting our teachers in uncomfortable positions. And so it's important for us to, to honor that and to make sure that we communicate to our own children the importance that that teacher is the leader of that classroom. I trust that teacher. 
is going to be having your best interest in mind, that we give that teacher the benefit of the doubt when that student has a question or a concern or maybe they're upset about something, that we try to remember that we're protecting both that child's relationship, but we're also protecting that teacher's relationship too. And, you know, one of the things that I try to practice, Jen, um, with my kids is I don't gossip about teachers. You know, so for instance, if I know their teachers well, maybe I know things about them inside the classroom, outside the classroom, the conversations I have with my kids about those teachers are based simply on the context my child needs to have, nothing more. Absolutely. And when you, if you're parenting with someone else, sometimes you go home at night and you want to vent and you want to share some details about a you know, frustrating day that might involve teachers, not even necessarily your child's teachers. It could be someone that they'll never have, but they, you know, they, that saying little pictures have big ears, they will hear it. And if they go back and tell a friend, anything that you've said or tell several friends, then your credibility really has been diminished. And so you have to be very careful at home with how, when, and where, and with whom you talk about school. I have the same rule as you will. I just don't talk about it if my, if my kids are anywhere nearby. And that goes to, I think we, we're talking teachers, but it also applies to coaches or advisors, people who your children may come in contact with. And you may know a whole bunch of stuff about those people as professionals, but you've just got to be careful not to, not to bring it up. Your children need to be protected from any information about the staff, the teachers in your building uh, that would come from you that would be anything but professional. And teachers deserve that kind of treatment too. So I think it's important that you're protecting those long-term relationships that you're going to have with both. And, you know, as my children have aged and I'm no longer leading the school where they went, there's things that they've, they've told me when they're older about a teacher or a staff person within that building that, that was probably information that I already knew. But I just never talked about it then because it wasn't right. something that was pertinent to their education. So they're not clueless. Sometimes they're aware of, of gossip or they're aware of conflicts between adults. All those dynamics that happen within any community, your kids are going to be aware of it. But you have to really protect them and that teacher from participating in anything that, um, that might breach that confidentiality. Well, and we do sometimes know negative things about teachers and we, we do have some influence, whether we admit it or not, in how our children are placed. And we have to keep in mind that that is that those decisions are scrutinized by other staff. My daughter was placed with a second year teacher once and there was apparently some scuttlebutt about, you know, why would that why would she be placed there? There's some more veteran teachers there. What does that mean? Well, the truth of it was I really had nothing to do with the decision. I was fine with it and I knew I could have changed it had I wanted to. But, you know, a lot of teachers put value that even perhaps doesn't exist on decisions that are made thinking that they came directly from the principal. Why? Why that teacher? What does that mean about me? Does that mean that the principal doesn't value me as much or like me as much? I had a teacher once who had a lot of absences every year. It was a pattern. And we had discussed it candidly. She knew how I felt about it. I said to her, you know, you're, you're absent more than the students to whom we sent a truant letter. Like, this is an issue. Well, and then when my child didn't end up in her class, the um, she kind of grumbled that, well, it's because she has an issue with my absences. And again, it had nothing to do with that, but teachers were putting words in my mouth that, that hadn't come out. And I guess I say all of that because that is the teacher's perspective, whether it's fair or not, that's what they're going to think about some decisions that are made. It's true. And it's different depending on age levels too. But right. I think in that teacher relationship, if you have a child who's in your building, they're under the care of the teachers within your building, 
often if my child was having a difficulty or maybe they had a question that needed to be answered or maybe they were struggling with the concept, I coached my kids to be the first communicator with that teacher. That should not be my responsibility first. It should be theirs. They should be able to go to that teacher before school. So sometimes I mean, I got there even earlier than normal um, to make sure my child could be there to go to see that teacher in the morning. And, and I would coach my child, this is what you're going to ask. You're going to ask, can I talk to you about this grade? Or can I ask you this question? And so I would coach my kids on doing that advocacy because it's important for that teacher to also be respected that you don't need to jump in every time there's a situation. Your child can advocate for himself or herself if they're old enough to, to manage that, that situation. I think if people come away from this podcast with one thing, I think that would be it, Will, because really that's what it should be. We should teach our kids to advocate for themselves. And so just because we're the principal doesn't mean we should send an email or make a phone call or set up a meeting. We should empower our children to do that because first of all, that's what we want other kids to do with their teachers. And that's what we coach parents to tell their kids. So we should do it ourselves for sure. I think I've been relatively successful in that. And I don't, I take zero credit. My husband's always been the one who says to our kids, you need to go ask the teacher. You need to send an email to the teacher. And about two weeks ago, my son had an assignment due and it involved technology and there'd been a glitch and he couldn't record it right. And so it was late and his grade was going to suffer. And I said to him, honey, I'll, I'll send an email to the teacher. And he said, no, mom, you will not. He said, I do not want to be that kid whose mom has to email the teacher. And I had a little moment of being hurt, but then I had a huge celebration. I thought, well, good. I don't want him to think that he has a mother who will do that. Not now, not in college, not when he doesn't pay his rent on time. He needs to handle it. And so I hope all principals who are doing the principal parent role will do exactly like you said, teach your kid to advocate. Don't be the one to swoop in and clear the path to make it easier. Yeah, it's so important to understand that that dynamic is different with every child. You know, we have four children at our home and one of our children who has struggled sometimes with punctuality or handing things in on time. We've had situations where we have assumed because the other kids within our family aren't behind on their schedules, et cetera, don't have problems with punctuality. Uh, We've made some wrong assumptions before that maybe the teacher had lost a paper or maybe the teacher missed something. And we found out in the process that, no, this teacher was doing what he or she should have done in that situation. And our daughter was irresponsible. And if you know my kids, you're going to figure out who I'm talking about, but they don't (laughs) listen to my podcast. So hopefully they're they're not offended. I love them all equally. But we've had, so we've had to have parent conversations with teachers where we have had to step in just to play the, the role of making sure everybody was clear. Okay, we're hearing this from our child. We're hearing this from you. And usually when we could put our child in the room with that adult, then we figured out what was really going on. And so, you know, we've had the privilege of kids that can advocate for themselves. We've had the, the challenge of a child who needed us to step in and make sure we were clear on the story because I'm a principal too. And I know sometimes kids don't tell you the full story. They tell you their perspective on the story. And so those are difficult dynamics and, it, and they're ever changing depending on right. the kind of kid you have, depending on the teacher that you're working with. But you can never just coast. You always have to stay engaged. You always have to be aware of the dynamics of your own children, the dynamics of the teachers that you have in front of you. And then you've got a nuance around all those things. You know, how I try to keep track of this in my own mind is to, I try to avoid using my position to change the trajectory of my child's education. I don't want my position to be Mm -hmm. any reason for or against anything that happens to and with my kids. And so that's kind of the the 
measuring stick I use, if you will. I don't want, because I'm the principal, to be the beginning of any sentence about my child. No, I like that. In fact, when um, our second daughter was starting high school, she wanted to be valedictorian. And I was really stressed about that because I did not want her success to reflect in any way that I, because I knew she was completely capable of being valedictorian. I didn't want that in any way to reflect on she's valedictorian because she's the principal's kid. And so what I coached her to do was choose the classes that match your passions, not choose the classes that are going to make you valedictorian, choose the classes that match your passions. I can't, I don't care if you're valedictorian. I want you to have the best high school experience you can have. I want you to do the best you can do and choose things you love to do. And so there were some choices where she had to choose between an AP course or musical theater and she chose musical theater. And so, you know what? She wasn't valedictorian, but she was salutatorian. So she ended up being the second person in her class she ended up, you know, ranking high. She ended up getting a, you know, doing a speech at graduation. She ended up celebrating her academics as well as the things that she loved to do. But I, looking back on that, I'm so glad that I just stepped back and just said, you do the things you love to do and we'll see where you land. And she didn't land at valedictorian. She landed right under it, but she ended up having the right experience without me trying to, to, to guide what the end result was going to be. Well, what I love about that, Will, is you kept in mind the end goal. Because what you want, again, is you want to raise an adult who can make decisions for herself based on what's best for her, based on things she cares about and her interests. So, you know, maybe she's going to be 35 years old one day and she's going to remember, wait a minute, it's not about being the, you know, having A pluses all the way through. It's about doing things that speak to me or doing things that speak to my passions. And so the the end goal there, again, you want to be a good parent. You don't want to say, well, mm-hmm. you know, I'm the principal and my daughter was valedictorian because that doesn't feel nearly as good as saying my daughter had a wonderful high school experience and she made good choices about what classes she was going to take. And she came out of it with wonderful grades and got to give a speech. You know, those are, you, you have to keep your eye on that end goal. And it's not an immediate, what's the word that instant gratification all the time. Sometimes you have to think, you know, in 20 years, I'll be glad about this decision I made as a parent and a principal. So let's stay there for a little bit, Jen, as we kind of move into the second half of this conversation, what end goals should we keep in mind? And I know that we're all of our children among our two families. I've got four kids, you've got two kids. And so we're all in different places, but we work with principals who have kids that are way beyond the ages of ours or just new babies at their, at their homes. What are some of those end goals that parents should keep in mind when they are parenting and principaling at the same time? Well, there's many sayings out there about you'll never have on your tombstone that you wish you'd spent more time at work or that you wished you'd been a better principal. Many of us do prioritize parenting because that's really our legacy. And so I think that's an important end goal is to be a strong parent. And I, by that, I emphatically mean, I don't mean that that means we fight every parent battle and advocate for our child relentlessly. In fact, it means the opposite. It means sometimes we step back, we let them advocate for themselves. We let them take some bumps and bruises. We let them struggle because even just because we know about some of those struggles, because we're, our office it has principal on the front door, doesn't mean that we jump in all the time. So I try to just watch myself and say, am I going to value and appreciate this decision as a parent later Or is it something that I just feel like I need to solve right now for my child? Another thing I try to keep in mind is, you know, my child will someday be a parent, perhaps. And I want to be a good role model. And and I know you've thought about that too, being a role model for your your kids. 
Well, those are great takeaways, Jen. And, and I know you and I aren't, this is not a parenting show, but you have to learn the power of being both connected to them, but also knowing when to step back. And so right. there's that always that tension of how do I teach my child to practice his or her autonomy and their own individuality while also stepping in when I need to, to help guide a situation because they're kids. And how do I stay connected with my own children emotionally so that I'm able to balance like what's the best decisions for them in those situations too. And we talked about this in a couple of weeks ago, the episode on balance and maintaining, you know, focus on what matters, the importance of your family. But it's just so important that as parents, you stay connected with what matters to your kids. And so whether that is a passion for academics or a passion for athletics or a passion for band or whatever it is that they know that you're, that you're there, that you're available for them. You know, we've had a lot of in our experience raising kids that are now teenagers and college age, we've had a lot of situations that I've encountered as the parent of young adult children where I've stepped back and thought, oh, what do I do in this situation? Or how do I manage this conversation? Or how do I manage this crisis that my child is going through? And I found myself going back to those times where I've sat in my office across the desk from a parent who's looking at me and saying, what should I do in this crisis situation, because I've been the one on the other side of that desk managing a kid who's just gone through a crisis with a parent who's asking me, what should I be doing while my kid's going through this crisis? And I've asked myself, what was it that I would tell those parents? It was the most important thing. And I would always look at those parents and say to them, let me tell you something. When a child is 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, when they're going through these difficult teenage years of their life, instability is is something they face every single day. And because of all the changes that they're facing emotionally, physiologically, in the relationships, and what they need more than anything is to know they have a parent who's there. You're a stable point in their life. Just knowing that you're there and that you're here asking me this question is so big. And I just want to assure you that the fact that you care so much that you just want to be there for your kid is going to be something they're going to look back on years later that they had somewhere they could land when they were in a crisis and they knew they could they could rest there with confidence. And so I've had to remind myself of that, that as my kids have gotten older, as they've faced difficult situations, as they're facing the stress of, you know, life as a young adult, college pursuits as a young adult, how do I just stay there? You know, no matter if I always have the right answers or not, no matter if I always know the exact thing to do or not, how can I be that parent who is the stable person in their life so that they have a place to land because your kids always need that place to land every day. I learned a great deal about parenting from my own, from my own father who was, I would even say clinical about parenting at some times. And by that, I mean, he would say, he would articulate, my job is to raise an adult. My job is not to make childhood easier for you. My job is not to make you happy all the time. My job is to raise an adult. And at times that infuriated me because I thought, no, I just want you to jump in and make this easier or give me some money or write me a a note to get out of school early. But he would be clinical in looking at parenting as a job. And so I have, have really channeled some of that energy as a parent myself. And so when my, my own children are going through some sort of crisis, what I try to do is think, what would a good parent do? And often that's just like mm-hmm. you said, it's listening, it's being there. My children will come home and there'll be something they're working through. And I've learned a lot of times to just listen and say, man, I'm really sorry. That is hard. 
I don't try to tell them about a story when I was younger and I don't try to fix it. And I don't say, well, I'm calling that other child's mother. I just say, man, I'm sorry. But another thing I learned, I learned this from a dear friend. She said, whenever we intervene as parents, especially if we have the power that a principal has, whenever we intervene, we are sending the message to our child that we don't think they can do it. And so the power is to say, honey, I'm sorry, that's really challenging, but I know you can work through this. I have 100% faith that you can do this without me. And so if you send that message that you believe in your child to the point where you're not even going to step in, boy, what a boost of confidence. Again, it doesn't feel great in that moment for the child, but later when they're adults, they'll be able to say, even if they do it unconsciously, my mom believed in me. My dad knew I could handle these things. I also liked when you said, ask yourself the question, what would a great parent do? Because I've had a principal tell me that before too. He or she is facing a situation that is difficult. Like, what do I do in this situation in my building? Ask yourself, what would a great principal do? And I think it's the same thing with parenting. Sometimes that's a great question to ask. And I've not thought that before, Jen. So thanks for that takeaway. What would a great parent do? And that might give you some moment to reflect and go, okay, maybe I need to go this direction today. Because you're right, you know, raising our children to be self-sufficient, confident, capable of problem solving, that's the end goal. And so how do we make decisions that help them reach those goals? I think principals have the potential to be rock star parents because we do have such a wide range of perspective and we've seen it done poorly. We've seen missteps that we think, oh, for heaven's sakes, I'm never going to do that. My parents actually allude to this quite a bit. They say, how lucky for your children that they're being raised by two educators. And it's true. We've seen so many things that we know don't work with kids, that we're careful in our house to not fall into traps that we've seen other parents fall into. So it really is a blessing to be a principal who's parenting. And, you know, we we started this conversation thinking about end goals. And what I would say is one of the end goals is to do both well, to be an excellent parent, but to also be an effective principal and have people respect the work. And really what that's about, Will, is doing right by all kids. The ones we have birthed, the ones that live with us, but other kids too. It it really is a huge cycle. Well, Jen, as we're wrapping up this conversation, I want to end with a story. When I made the decision to transition away from full-time principalship to do the work that I'm doing now with my state association, um, it was a tough decision. I loved being a principal and a principal dad at the same time. And I also knew that I still had one daughter who was going to be in my building that if I stepped away, I wouldn't be there every day watching her. And so we were wrestling with all those dynamics of what what would this look like if I made this decision and how would we monitor the work she was doing at the school I would no longer be leading, but also we're parents of two other kids that were at schools I wasn't leading. So what would that look like? And we had actually gone to, on a summer vacation to a cabin way out in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma, and just kind of disconnected for a couple of days and we're fishing and just hanging out. And I was just really chewing on those questions and trying to make a decision and, and praying and, and talking a lot to my wife when I finally felt like we'd reached a decision. And so we pulled our kids together. Uh, it was a late evening. We were down by the river just throwing rocks. And I can still remember the, you know, that golden light of the, the, the day when the sun's setting and it's so beautiful. And I pulled the kids in a circle with Missy and just said, hey, this is the opportunity I've been given. And this is the decision that I think I'm going to be making. And my oldest daughter um, began to cry when I told her I was making that transition. And I, I asked her later, um, you know, why is this making you so emotional? And she, 
she communicated back to me because I know how much you love your school. Wow. And I always, I'm always so pleased by that memory because, because I did, I love my kids and I love my school both. And I was so pleased that she could see that you could do both. You could have a heart for your family, but you could also have a heart for your school. And so those of you that have the privilege or the challenge of having a kid in your building, it is, it's really a gift. And you may be one of those principals who has a kid in your building that it's not a gift. You know, it's like, it's a nightmare. Maybe you're one of those. And I know Jen and I haven't really addressed like what to do if you have the nightmare child, because I've had friends whose kids can be nightmares. But I do want to encourage you that it is a gift to be the principal of your own child in your school, because no one else ever gets that perspective of leading a school community and an organization where you can not only build the kind of school that you want your child to go to, but then actually have your child go to that school and then see all the goods and bads and challenges that come with that. But it'll make you a better principal and it'll make you a better parent. And so Jen, as we wrap up this week's conversation, did you have any other thoughts on that before we say goodbyes? I love that you say it's a privilege. It really is. And I think, I think here's the thing to be a parent is a privilege to be a principal is a privilege. Many people out there would kill for the opportunity to do one of those things. And we get to do both and we get to do it simultaneously. Even if our Mm -hmm. kids are not necessarily in our building, if they're attending school elsewhere to do both at the same time, enormously exhausting, enormously challenging, but we'll always get to carry that with us that we shared so closely and intimately with our, our kids' school journey. So definitely a privilege. Well, Jen Schwanke, thank you so much as we've continued this series on strategies and solutions that work for school leaders and Principal Matters listeners. Thank you for taking the time to listen this week, to learn and to grow together. Until next time, thanks for doing what matters. Thanks, everyone. We will see you next time. If you'd like other free resources like this one, you can check out all my posts at williamdparker.com.